Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in Philippians 3, 17 through 21. As you turn there, I just want to tell you guys how much I love you and how much I miss you while I was out of town this weekend, this last weekend. Uh, every time I uh, visit another church, I'm always really thankful, usually really thankful for uh, a, seeing a ton of evidence of grace in, in churches that are not our own. But I'm also just like super eager to get back to you. You know, I'm just like, it's like when you're, when you're traveling and you stay in maybe a nice hotel room and the bed is like amazing, but it's like, it's not my bed, you know, it's just not my church and you are my church. You are my family. I love you. And I'm really glad to be back with you this morning. It would have been really cool just now, by the way, if you guys would have all like in unison without even planning would have just been like, we love you, Sean. Right. Anyways, huh? Whoa, guys, please stop. <laughs> Enough. All right. Philippians chapter three, verses 17 through 21. I'll read aloud. You follow along with me. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So let me pause. If you're wondering why we prayed a prayer of lament this morning, it's because of this, right? This idea of people being enemies of the cross It's something that should cause us to weep. It's something that should lead us to lament. Even with tears, I tell you, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. This is why we weep. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And this is why we pray to prayer of praise. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. All right. So imagine with me for a moment that you are a stranger living in a foreign land. You can pick the place, India, China, Eritrea, Ecuador, doesn't matter. Now this foreign land has a particular political system. It has peculiar social customs. It has to you an unfamiliar language and everything about it is different. The money is different, the clothes are different, the food is different, the art is different, the architecture is different, even the smells are different. So in this new culture, maybe instead of shaking hands when meeting someone new like you do in the United States, the people in this place, they bow or perhaps they give you a kiss on the cheek. When Amber and I came home from Peru, we startled some women the first week 
in our home church. When we tried to kiss them on the cheek, we were just so used to doing that, they were not used to that at all. Restraining orders were filed. Maybe in this culture you've imagined, if it's an Eastern culture, eye contact when speaking will be perceived as a form of disrespect. But if the culture you've chosen is Middle Eastern, eye contact will be long and unbroken, awkwardly so. If you find yourself sharing a meal with someone in this new culture, particularly in certain parts of Africa, your new neighbors may try to feed you with their hands. And to prevent them from doing so would be incredibly offensive. Maybe in this new culture, you would try to point to someone using your finger and you would be told that's not how we do it here. In this culture, we purse our lips together and we point with our mouth. Every stranger in a foreign land has to adapt. They have to adjust. They have to learn. They have to live in this new place. And it's never easy. They are always faced with three basic options for how they will live as strangers. They can choose separation, integration, or assimilation. Those who choose the path of separation will not use the new language. They will try their best not to adopt the new customs or integrate their new life into the surrounding culture in any meaningful way. You can think about the Amish. Right? Or you can even think about large Chinese families. They're just known to want to build up kind of their own native hub and, and try to be as Chinese as possible even in a different part of the world. Those who choose assimilation, on the other hand, will assume all of the behaviors, all of the values, all of the rituals, all of the beliefs, all of the customs of their new land. They will abandon everything that made them who they were in the land that they once inhabited. You can think, for example, today of modern secular Jews, right? There's just not really much that's Jewish about them other than the fact that they are ethnically descended from the line of Abraham. And then finally, there's the integration option. Integration is what you see in the life of Daniel during the Babylonian exile. It's what you see in the life of Hudson Taylor during his ministry as a missionary to China. It's the path that the Apostle Paul advocates for. You have to be in the world, and that's inescapable, but you must never be of the world. This is the path of those who choose to adapt to their new culture, but never assimilate to their worldview. Now, it's easy for Christians in the West to assimilate rather than integrate because life is good for us here. We feel at home in this world. We are fairly comfortable. But the fact of the matter is is that this world is not our home. Hebrews 11 tells us that we are strangers and exiles, right? 1 Peter 2 tells us that we're sojourners, and that word just means that we're just passing through. We're here for a good time. Not for a long time. And finally, in verse 20 of this morning's text, we see that Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. So while you may have been born in the United States and you may live on planet Earth, your address is not in this place. Your address is home with Jesus in heaven. And yet, here we are in the world in the United States, in 
Decatur, Alabama. We feel it. We feel like strangers in this place, or we should. We feel like exiles. We feel like we don't actually belong here, like Adam outside of the garden, like Israel after they had been exiled into Babylon, like Jesus in the flesh. We live in a place that we can feel in our bones is not our true home. So the question we have to ask is, how do we learn to live in this world as citizens of another? How do we learn to live as citizens of this world, excuse me, in this world as citizens of another? That's what this morning's sermon is all about. In this, in this morning's text, Paul calls on the Philippians to imitate him and to imitate the example of everyone who is living like a true citizen of heaven. You can see that. Just look back at verse 17. Paul says, brothers, which is referring to all of the Christians there, men and women, brothers, join in imitating me. But then in verses 18 and 19, Paul makes a contrast. He contrasts his own example with the example of those he calls enemies of the cross. And and the contrast could not be any more extreme. We await a savior. They await destruction. We are governed by the Spirit of God. They're governed by their carnal appetites. We have our minds set on the glory of the resurrection. Their minds are set on shameful things of this world. We long for heaven. They're pretty comfortable here. So Paul's aim in drawing this comparison is to build a kind of discernment into the Philippians, which means you, the members of 6th Avenue, What God wants you to have in you this morning, formed by his word, is a kind of discernment that says, follow these people, not these people. Which assumes that Christians are going to be following someone. It assumes, when Paul says, imitate me, don't imitate those guys, he's assuming that we're all going to be imitating someone. That's just the way that God created us to be. Right? Did you notice in the scripture that was read earlier? Be imitators of God. Right? Paul doesn't say, hey, first of all, let me convince you of your need to imitate someone. No. You're going to imitate someone. Start with God. Right? And this is just the way that humans work. Children imitate their parents. One of the things I love, uh, I love both of my kids equally, obviously, perfectly, all the time. But, like, one of the things that I'm digging about patience right now is that, like, her sense of humor is very much like mine, right? Like I behold in her sense of humor a sense of my own glory. You see what I'm saying? But like, where did that come from? Well, she, she's kind of learned some of that by, by watching me. She's imitating my sense of humor and who wouldn't, right? But children learn to imitate their parents. Uh, they learn by imitating their parents. They learn by imitating older, uh, older siblings. And for better or worse, they learn by imitating influential friends. Employees learn by imitating their bosses and their business mentors, for better or worse. Christians will learn by imitating older, wiser, holier, godlier Christians. This is a good impulse, it's a natural impulse, but most importantly, it is an inescapable impulse. Let me just share a couple of scriptures with you to this effect. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 
Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Paul tells this young protege, soon to be pastor, hey, listen, they're going to be following you even though you're young, so set them an example. They're going to be imitating you. 1 Peter chapter 5, so I exhort the elders among you, that is the pastors, be examples to the flock. Why? Because the flock is going to follow you. The sheep are going to follow the shepherds in the church. From the other perspective, the author of Hebrews addresses believers in the church. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Right? Paul says, listen, find leaders who everything that they do seems to turn out good and follow them, imitate them. So this is just built into the normal, healthy rhythm of Christian discipleship. So just one quick little point of application here. If you think that in order to like disciple other Christians, you have to have like an MDiv or some kind of like Bible college degree, or you have to be able to lead a Bible study, or you have to be able to preach a sermon, or you don't. All you have to do is follow Jesus faithfully. There are going to be people around you constantly in the life of the church if we're doing church right. And they're going to go, oh, I see Jesus in you. You're a couple of steps ahead of me on this path of sanctification. I'm going to imitate you. We should all expect to not only have people imitate us, but to also be imitating others as we grow together into him who is the head and to Christ Jesus himself. But what happens when a Christian does the very natural thing of imitating, but he or she begins to imitate someone who is not worthy of imitation? Someone who only appears to be practicing what James calls true religion. What happens when we start to follow someone who's only chasing after their own carnal desires, but they've done an excellent job, an expert job of, of wrapping up their own carnal desires with a thin veneer of Christianity, right? They can say all the right words, right? They can, they can wear the right clothes, listen to the right music, read the right books. What happens when we follow someone, when we begin to imitate someone who is actually trying to lead us into destruction, Paul makes this contrast between enemies of the cross with his own ministry. And in Paul's own ministry, he is a champion of the cross, right? So, so consider Paul and the way he talks about the cross of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, and this is a pretty good summation of his whole ministry, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified that's the way you talk about the cross when you're a champion of the cross enemies of the cross don't talk like that right champions of the cross when they love the cross when they bow at the foot of the cross when they believe in the power of the cross they say all this other stuff may be good and we can use it with wisdom but like i want you to know that none of it matters unless we are focused on the finished work of christ on the cross in chapter 1, verse 18 of that same letter, Paul says it like this. 
To us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. You may think it's foolish. I get it. What kind of God comes and dies a criminal's death on the cross? But to us who are being saved by this cross, we champion the cross. We don't diminish the cross. We don't alter the message of the cross. We don't in any way try to hide the cross or decorate the cross and make it more palatable. No, all we do is trust in the power of God and we hold the cross high in the air and we say the finished work of God on this cross is the only hope that we have in life and death. Now look at verse 19 real quick. Verse 19. Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is a description of what he's talking about in verse 18 when he describes these false teachers as enemies of the cross. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? In order to understand that, I think we need to understand God's design for the cross. Like, what was the purpose? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did he have to give up his life there? So let's just consider three verses together. You're welcome to turn to these verses with me. If you're a quick draw McGraw, if you've got like your Awana's like Bible crown with all the jewels, you can get there really quick. If not, just listen carefully. Starting in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And where did he die for us? On the cross, right? So this verse tells us that the cross is the means by which God communicates his love to us. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. So what this verse tells us is, is that the cross is the means by which God eliminates all of our spiritual debt that we owe him because of our sin. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered on the cross once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Oh, man, (laughs) you were far from God. If you're here this morning and you think like, yeah, me and God are good, but like you haven't trusted in the cross, you're not okay with God. It's only through the work of, of the cross that God brings us back to himself because there was a debt that stood between us and God. And when Christ gave his life for us on the cross, he eliminated that debt and he communicated his love. And we could just keep going and going and going. This is not an exhaustive study of all that the cross does for us. But the point here is that an enemy of the cross is someone who wants to move us away from all of those benefits. Right? God says, in the cross, I want you to see my love for you. But an enemy of the cross works at cross purposes, pun not intended, but happy that it happened, right? An enemy of the cross works against that so that we cannot clearly perceive God's love for us. If the cross removes our debt, our sin debt, then an enemy of the cross is someone who wants us to remain indebted to God. If the cross is the means by which God brings us back to himself, then an enemy of the cross wants us to be separated from God eternally. In in 2005, Osama bin Laden issued a call, a universal call to all Muslims 
to take up arms against what he calls the people of the cross. That's not surprising, right? The leader of Al-Qaeda is an outspoken enemy of the cross. But the great danger of the enemies that Paul addresses in this text is that they are not out there flexing their hatred for the cross in a very public way. They're trying to deceive us. They profess to be friends of the cross. It's subterfuge. It's a ruse. Jesus calls it wolves in sheep's clothing. John MacArthur, commenting on this verse, says it like this. These are people who say that they are friends of the cross and the cross of Christ, who advocate Christ, who identify with Christ, whose names may be on the church roll, who want spiritual leadership, but they are, in fact, enemies of all that God has done for us in the gospel. These enemies of the cross are so dangerous because they do not come professing their true intentions. Now, let me be clear. There is in all of us an anti-cross impulse. That's just what sin does, right? We trust in ourselves. We trust in our own works and our own righteousness. We think we can fix everything on our own without God's help in Jesus. We will always have to deal with that as long as we are in these bodies of death. That's not what I'm addressing in this text. That's not what Paul is talking about. And by the way, there's grace for that. What Paul is talking about here are teachers in the church, right? People who are in positions of authority who claim to speak on behalf of God and do so with some semblance of credibility, right? Those who have gained the trust of the sheep, those who have a, a platform and a track record and a title and all of the trappings of legitimacy. And what do they do with that trust? What do they do with that platform? They throw up their own photo negative of the gospel and say, follow me. They, 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 they hold up their own anti-Christian cross Forged in the fires of hell, they hold it up high in the sky and they say, follow me to God, when in fact, they are trying to lead God's elect right over the precipice of destruction. So be aware, brothers and sisters, of those who would lead you away from the cross. One of the best ways that you can be aware of these enemies of the cross is just to be a good study of the cross yourself, right? to really dig into the gospel. Like if I were to like talk to you like, hey, what is substitutionary atonement? You might go, that's a big word. I, but, but hopefully you would say something to the effect of like, yeah, it's where God gave himself as a substitute for me and my sin in Jesus. Whether you remember those words or not, you should be able to know what God has done for you in the cross. And in the same way that like secret service agents who do all of the... Um, money inspecting they make sure that there's no counterfeiting going on with the u.s currency they're not trained by handling fake money they're trained by spending so much time handling real money that whenever false bills come along they can detect it immediately that's how you should be with your knowledge of the cross you know the gospel so well so well inside and out that when someone comes along professing a bunch of nonsense about the cross you can just smell it a mile away Right? You understand the glories of the cross, what God has done for you through his son on the cross, how he has loved you on the cross, how he has forgiven you at the cross, how he has humbled you by the cross, how he has suffered for you at the cross, how he has made you righteous at the cross. 
When you know that through and through because you've meditated on God's word day and night, you've treasured it, you've savored it, you've rejoiced in it, you've professed it, you've discipled people in the church with it. When you are immersed in it in that way, an enemy of the cross will come along and you can just smell it on. It's a little late in the sermon for me to give you three points, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. Three long points. No, I'm just kidding. I want to spend, I want to, I want to give you three points uh, to, to draw out some of the, um, yeah, some of the ways that Paul describes these enemies of the cross. And he does it by way of contrast. So I think you'll see what I'm doing as, as I go. Point number one. Destruction versus resurrection. The first characteristic of an enemy of the cross is that they are on the path to destruction. You see that right there in verse 19. Their end is destruction. In contrast, all of those who are true citizens of heaven, who are following Jesus faithfully, they are on the path to glory. That's what we see in verse 21. This promise is that Through Jesus, we will have our lowly bodies transformed to be like his glorious body. So they're headed to destruction. We are headed to glory. Here's what I want you to see. And it's so simple. You might be thinking, Sean, you, you probably didn't even have to say it. But sometimes those are the things that we have to say most clearly. If you follow the path of those headed for destruction... You will be destroyed. Peter says it like this. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly, do you see that secret language there? Enemies of the cross, right? They're they're, they're moving secretly in the church. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, why does he say destructive heresies? He could have just said heresies, right? They bring in false teachings, He says destructive heresies because he wants you to know that if you choose to believe in this gospel, which is at odds with the message of the cross, you will be destroyed. Just like those who preach it. In contrast, we who are trusting in the one true gospel, those of us who are following hard after the cross, we are on the path to glory. Right? So the application here is super simple. Follow those who are faithful on the path to glory. Point number two, the heart versus the stomach. The second characteristic of an enemy of the cross is that they are governed by their stomach, not their heart. You see that again in verse 19. Not only is there indestruction, but it says their God is their belly. That's a a metaphor, right? This, this, this language of, of the belly, it just refers to your carnal desires, that which you want most in the flesh. But notice the language that Paul uses here. He does not just say that the enemies of the cross occasionally slip up into sin. He doesn't say that they sometimes have an impulse problem or an addiction problem. He says that they are governed by their carnal desires. They are worshiping their carnal desires. Their carnal desires are their God. They worship them. They trust in them. They look to their carnal desires for meaning and purpose 
and direction. And you see this all the time. Let me just give you a couple of examples. And the contrast here is between following your stomach, which represents your carnal desires, and if you're a true Christian, following your heart, which has been made new by God and Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, I knew a woman one time who no longer wanted to be in a marriage that wasn't even that difficult. It wasn't that hard of a marriage. She just kind of didn't want to be in it anymore. And so, and men do this as well. I'm just telling you the example that I know of. And she said that she felt like God was freeing her from her marriage. Okay. What God is she worshiping? Because the God of the Bible is very clear that we don't just give up on marriage whenever we feel like it. Right? Marriage is a picture of the gospel. We fight for our covenant love. She's not worshiping the God of the Bible. She's worshiping her own carnal desires. And isn't it funny that uh, when we worship false gods, they always seem to agree with us about whatever it is that we want to do. Or consider what's happening right now, just the trend in broader evangelicalism, from the increase in female pastors to affirming views on homosexuality to something that I'm particularly worried about at this moment, the rise of racism in reform circles. Enemies of the cross are worshiping and obeying their own sinful desires and appetites rather than what God has clearly communicated in his word. And it seems like it's everywhere we look. Some of the people who are doing the best job of standing fast to God and his word are not here in the United States. They're in Africa. They're in China. They're in Vietnam. Now verse 19 also says that those who worship the God of their belly, notice the language, they glory in their shame. That's just synonymous for worship. They, 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 they celebrate it, right? They know that what they're doing is wrong. They know that it's evil because Romans 1 tells us that our conscience convicts us of these things. And they glory in their evil. And do we not see that as well today? Right? It's not merely enough for a person to practice evil, but it must be celebrated with flags and with holy days and with perverse public rituals. What we see here is that the enemies of the cross have their own doxology. The word doxology simply means a response of worship. And everyone has a doxology. The followers of Christ have their own doxology. Because we glory, as Paul says in chapter 1, we glory in Christ Jesus. We see what he has done for us, what God has done through his son, and our response to that is to give him all of the glory. The enemies of the cross glory in their wicked desires because their desires give them everything that they want in their sin. And so they respond to that work with their own corrupt praise. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live like this if we truly belong to Christ. One of the reasons why so many churches are so ineffectual for the gospel, why they have so little power, why they're, why they're basically doing nothing to accomplish anything for the sake of the Great Commission is because they have allowed their members to just be utterly and completely given over to the God of their belly. 
But if we are truly citizens of heaven, and that's what the church should be, a gathering of all of God's citizens, right? We are an outpost of heaven. So when we get dismissed today, we're all going to go into our little spheres. You know, we're going to be homemakers and lawyers and doctors and principals and uh, masons and carpenters and uh, pizza shop managers. Holler at you, Blaine, right? We're going to be all of these things in our respective spheres but we're going to be like citizens of heaven in the foreign land. But then every Sunday on the day that our Lord and Master got up out of the grave, we come back together again, and this is a holy outpost of heaven. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to go on living as if we are governed by a different law than the law that we have from God and His Word and His Spirit. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is is in heaven. So as citizens of heaven, we live under a gospel constitution. We are ruled by a different law than the law of our desires. We're, we're ruled by the law of love, the law of Christ. And this law, it governs every aspect of our lives. Though we don't obey it perfectly, we do strive by God's grace to obey it consistently. So, imitate those who worship and obey the Spirit and the gospel of God over their own carnal desires. Point number three, home versus heaven. The final mark of an enemy of the cross is that their mind is set on earthly things. Look back to verse 19 again. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And if you contrast that with verse 20, right, we are citizens of heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Now that language of awaiting is not passively waiting, like just sort of sitting in the doctor's office reading a highlights magazine, you know, just absentmindedly until your name is called, right? No, we are actively waiting. We are looking. We are anticipating Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Blessed are all who love the coming of the Lord, right? This is what we want more than anything. It consumes us. We're so tired of this place. It's not our home. Our home is in heaven, so we await a Savior. So the application here is pretty simple. Strive to imitate those people who are quite obviously not at home in this fallen world. If someone seems like just really settled in this life, just, just like incapable of being bothered by the gospel, having their plans changed, being disquieted or discomforted or disrupted by the gospel, that's not someone that you should probably be imitating. You don't want to imitate someone who is just cozy in the trappings of this fallen world. Right? I was on that same path. I remember when Amber and I were 19, we joined the army And I had just sort of planned out the American dream. You know, I grew up really poor, and then the Army started giving me a paycheck, and then they told me they had all these great retirement benefits in 20 years. And I was 19, so I could retire at 39. And then I could go get probably a good government job, maybe here in Huntsville, right? And then do another 20 years working for the government, and then I could have two retirements by the age of 59. And, you know, then I'd be living high on the hog. I mean, that's the American Retired twice by the age of 59? Come on now. And then I watched a John Piper sermon and everything blew up in my face, you know? 
just came, went to Iraq, saw people dying every day, heard the, the call to prayer five times a day, started going on joshuaproject.net, 1040 window project, and I started seeing that there are billions of people who have no access to the gospel. And I was like, I'm a little too comfortable, you know? I'm, I'm a little too at home here. I feel like I, I've sort of planned to like settle down in this place, like this place is my home. Like I'm, I'm getting everything in the house exactly the way I want it because I'm going to be here for a really long time. But the fact of the matter is I'm not. I'm a sojourner. Life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. And eternity is going to last a lot longer than the 60, 70, 80 years if you're lucky here on earth. Don't follow people who seem to have no gospel bearing in their life in the way that they're sort of spending their money and, and thinking about their family and, and exercising their gifts. Follow people who seem to desperately be waiting on the Lord Jesus, who want to be home with him, who cannot escape. They're integrated in this world. That's inescapable. They cannot escape the fact that they have to work, they have to you know, pay taxes, all this stuff, but they just... They want to be home with Jesus. And you can smell it on them. You can see it in them. You can feel it when you interact with them. They have Bible on their lips, right? They're just quick to talk about God's word and to apply it to any situation. There's a parenting problem. What does God's word say? There's a marriage issue. What does God's word say? How should we spend this money? What does God's word say? A complicated political issue. What does God's word say? Even as they fumble towards the answers, even as they're just trying in the dark to make sense of really complicated things, they're, they're failing in the right direction. They're quick to pray. This is huge. I remember when I was hanging out with uh, James. Uh, James is last name? I'm having a, a... James Alexander, man. I was getting ready to go to Peru. Uh, we were getting ready to go as missionaries, and I, I spent a couple weeks with this guy. And he just prayed so much. And it wasn't feigned. He wasn't putting on a performance for me. And I realized I'm the one who's going to be a missionary. And I'm not talking to God the way that this guy is talking to God. I'm a little too comfortable. Quick to pray. These are the kinds of people that are just, they just grow disinterested with too much talk of the things of this world. You know what I'm talking about? Right, like They may have a passing interest in sports and movies and politics and business, and they may even be passionate about some of those things right? at, at one level. But at, a, at another higher level, what really gets them excited is talking about the kingdom of God. It's, it's rolling around in the gospel like a pig in mud. Like We just want to talk about the scriptures. We want to talk about the glory of the Christ. We want to talk about the work of the Spirit. I want to tell you all the evidences of grace that I see in the members of our church. I want to talk about the Great Commission. I want to strategize about how God can use us to accomplish his purposes to the ends of the earth. That's what gets us excited. Imitate those kinds of people. You know, I spent uh, four days in Portland last week. It was pretty interesting. When I told people in Alabama I was going to Portland, they were all like, ugh. And then when I told people in Portland that I was from Alabama, they were all like, ugh. Right? And uh, it was an interesting four days. Interesting. That's a safe adjective, right? It was interesting. But uh, while I was there, one of the church members, very sweet lady, had a really amazing testimony. She was like, you know, how do you like our city? And I was just like, oh, great. I want to get home, though. You know what I'm saying? I want to get, I want to get home. 
follow people who talk like that about heaven, right? Like, yeah, earth, God has created this place beautiful, and it, it reflects the truth, beauty, of, and, and goodness of God in so many amazing ways, and we should talk about Christian hedonism and what that means to, like, stop and enjoy the flowers and sunsets and, and art and all these, yes, give me all of that, but at the same time, it's broken in sin, it's ruined, it's marred, and I don't want to be here forever. I'm going to do my best to enjoy it while I can and to give glory to God while I'm here. But I can only do that because I know that the day is right around the corner where I get to go to something infinitely greater. How do you like it here on earth, Christian? It's cool. But man, I can't wait to get home with my family, with my father, with my brothers and sisters. Where, where I get to sing all the songs that we know together, forever. If you're here this morning and um, you're maybe for the first time or you're in the process of considering the claims of the gospel, um, you, you might find this idea that, that people can be enemies of God or be enemies of the cross. You might find it kind of shocking or jarring. You never really thought about it that way. You thought... Yeah, there are some religious people, and they seem to be really dedicated to God, and then everyone else kind of falls in this, like, neutral category. I understand why you would think that, but, but I'm here to tell you that that's, that's not what Christians believe, because that's not what God says in his word. That's not what the Bible teaches. So in Romans chapter 5, for example, we are told by God that, that he loved us and reconciled us to God by the death of his son on the cross while we were enemies so there's 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 a correction that might need to be before i get back to addressing maybe any unbelievers here let me just stop and address the believers in the room uh whenever we talk about enemies of the cross versus champions of the cross or those who are destined for hell and those who are destined for heaven what might rise up in you is this impulse to like have an us versus them mentality which then gives way to an air of superiority and pride and I'm here to tell you that the gospel leaves absolutely no room for that. The gospel says that, yes, they are enemies of the cross. We're not going to try to soften that. We're not going to dull the edge of that blade. It's sharp on purpose. It's supposed to cut all the way down to the bottom. And also, you must remember that the only reason that you belong to Jesus today is because of his grace. He saved you when you were an enemy of the cross. Maybe you didn't realize it, but you were. Everything about your life was at cross purposes with the gospel. You were actively opposing the gospel. Scripture says you were at enmity with God. Back to any seekers this morning, questioners, unbelievers. The idea that someone may be an enemy of God shouldn't really be like the most difficult thing for you to wrap your mind around. The most, the thing that should like, like really cause your, in Spanish, the word for puzzle is rompecabeza, which means like headbreaker. The thing that should be like really breaking your head right now is the idea that God would die to save his enemies. You see, kings don't do that. Lords don't do that. When you're in control of the land and people rise up in rebellion and try to take you off of your throne, you don't go, oh, I'm going to go out on the battlefield and die so that they can come up and be regal and glorious with me in my throne. You go out and you kill them. 
So it was really hard for us to, it should be hard for us to wrap our, and if it's not hard for you to wrap your mind around this, it's because you've been stewing in Christian culture, Christianity, Christian worldview, and you don't even know it. This, this idea that God would in love give himself up for you in order to save you and bring you back home, that doesn't make sense in any other worldview. It doesn't make sense in Buddhism, it doesn't make sense in Hinduism, and it sure as heck doesn't make sense in secular humanism. Only because you have been steeped in Christian worldview does this idea even make a little bit sense to you. But just because it makes sense doesn't mean it affects you like it should. It should rock you, it should blow your mind. You should be absolutely stunned, and you should be humbled, and you should want to have a loving relationship with this God who did this for you. He didn't have to do it. He is perfectly content within himself. He could have let all of us die and go to hell, and the wrath that he would have poured out on our heads there in that place forever would have been totally justified. But God loved us enough to do something different, to die in our place and to save us from the wrath that we so richly deserve. You know, it's, it's weird. Every week I try, I try to do a gospel presentation, you know, where I share the truth of the gospel and I, I call people to repent and believe in it. And it's, it's weird because I really mean it with all of my heart. But there's also this, this impulse, this pressure that I feel to, like, make it a little different every week, you know, you, to, to try to be a little clever, to, to put different wrapping paper on the same present. Guys, I got to tell you, in sermon prep this week, I, didn't have, I don't have anything. I don't have anything creative for you other than to tell you that I've, I've just sort of plainly offered you what I think is at least my best attempt to explain the Christian gospel. And I want to tell you how desperately I want you to believe it. And I want to call you today, right now, to stop trusting in yourself, to stop running from God, and to just receive his grace and to let him save you. I have three more application points, and I recognize that uh, it's going to be a little bit of a, a downhill in, like, the overall journey of the sermon, you know. But I think these are important enough that I want to give them to you. So I'm going to give you three quick application points, and then we'll respond with a, a hymn of praise, okay? We're not going out with a bang, but we're going out together. Application point number one. Look closely. Look closely. Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk in this certain way. So the idea here is that you need to be looking at people. You can't imitate them unless you're looking at them. And you can't really learn to imitate them properly unless you're looking at them closely. Right? You shouldn't just be looking at the broad patterns of people's lives, especially in the Christian South where Again, there's a lot of general Christian morality, and it's kind of hard to know who's a Christian. I mean, everyone's going to church. Everyone's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, everyone's trying to have, like, a good all-American family. To really see who you should be imitating, you've got to get in deeper. You have to look closely. You have to discern. You have to ask questions. You have to pay attention. You have to pray for wisdom, right? So even in our local church, right? If you're a new parent and you're looking at other wiser parents, right, and you see, for example, maybe one day uh, they're telling their little boy, hey, hey, go put that toy away. And the little boy says no. 
And the parent immediately moves to corrective discipline. Not spanking necessarily, but corrective discipline. And that doesn't make sense to you because you grew up in a household where you negotiated with terrorists, right? I'm going to count to five and you better put that toy away, right? That's the only parenting style you've ever known. But you see someone immediately move to corrective discipline. Get in there. Look closely at their life. Their life is on display for you. Ask questions. Hey, I noticed, I noticed you didn't count to three when you told them that they better pick up that, when they told you no. And then also you took them back and you said, you don't ever tell me no. Our family didn't do that. Why did you do that? Help me understand. You seem like a good, wise, godly parent. Or if you're struggling with quiet times and you know a sister in the church who has had particular success with her quiet times, go to her. Like, get in there. Ask her, like, how are you doing this so well? I saw that you read all the way through the book of Hebrews last month. I read chapter 1, verse 1, and then I quit. What's the difference between me and you? Help me understand. If you're a young man in the church and you're struggling with lust and you see another older man in the church that, uh, by his own testimony, has had victory over lust, Get in there. Look closely at his life. I don't know how it is in all churches. I know in this church, we embrace the awkward, right? So much so that it's really not that awkward. Ask difficult questions. Ask probing questions. Ask specific questions. Tell me exactly how you put porn to death in your life, brother, because I want to imitate you. This is one of the benefits of the local church. Proximity. Our lives are enmeshed with one another, so it's very easy for us to look closely at each other. We have trust, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the same gospel. Subpoint number two, application point number two, look constantly. In verse 17, Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk. That's intentional language. He says, keep your eyes on them, not steal a glance at them occasionally, not look at them once and then let your gaze drift off somewhere else. No, if you find someone worthy of imitation, stick with them. Keep your eyes on them. Go deep in your walk with them. It may not always look the same. You know, you may not be meeting up for, maybe for the first six months of your discipleship, you're doing Bible studies once a week. But then maybe for the next six years of the discipleship, you're not really doing that, but their life is open to you and you know that you can be in there anytime you want to be. And so you look as often as is necessary. Subpoint number three. I told you guys they're going to be quick, right? Huh? Subpoint number three, application point number three, look near. In order to look closely and to look constantly, you have to be near to someone. You, you can't really know whether or not someone is worthy of imitation at a distance. This is a problem in our day and age where all the people we want to follow are the people who are very far away from us. Sometimes this can even be built into the fabric of our church, which is why polity is super important. It's one of the reasons why at Sixth Avenue, we, we we're happy to call them brothers and work with them, but we are just not super big fans of multi-site churches. We don't think that's what a church is. I can tell you, I was once a member of a multi-site church where I never met my pastor for like the whole time I was there. But one day, we, me and a group in the church, we decided we were going to go meet our pastor. Kind of crazy, right? And so we drove like an hour away to the main campus, hoping he would be there that Sunday, right? And when we got to the main campus, after the service, we were told, this pastor shall not be named. This pastor is going to be waiting at the bookstall for any members who want to meet him. Isn't that crazy? 
Can you imagine if you're like, members of Sixth Avenue, Sean will be by the bookstall for anyone who wants to meet him after the service, right? He'll be by the bookstall. So we went and we stood in line for like half an hour, like a half an hour. And I finally got up to the front, shook his hand, told him my name, right? And he's, he probably remembered it. He's good, you know? Exchanged some pleasantries, and then we walked away. And I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. This guy's my pastor. He has oversight of my soul. I'm supposed to be following hard after him. He's supposed to be an example to me. The only time I ever see him is once a week for an hour, 35 minutes, on Sunday, and it's not even in person. It's on a video screen. Other than that, I need to set an appointment or wait 30 minutes after traveling an hour to get to him. This is not the way the local church is supposed to work. And while I'm ranting and raving against things that are unhealthy, sermons online... Watching sermons online, many Christians are tempted to imitate the example of their favorite pastor, teacher, personality on the internet, which is a massive problem because you don't really know that person. Oh, you see, they posted that video and they stood up and they said the right things to the right person in the right way. And you go, oh, yeah, I wish my pastor was more like him. And by the way, I feel loved and appreciated. So I'm not saying this from a place of hurt or anything like that in my church. I'm just telling you, this is a phenomenon today, and it is bad. It is unhelpful. You see what Paul Washer or John MacArthur or Mark Dever or John Piper or David Platt or insert whoever you think is the hero of the day, and you, you're watching them on the Internet, and you're like, man, I wish my pastor was more like that. But, you know, I've been in all those rooms. I know people in all those churches. I know a lot of them. You know what, they, what you find out? They're sinful just like us. They're weak, just like us. Their churches have problems, just like our churches. And very often, if you could meet them, they would actually tell you the same thing I'm telling you. Don't follow me. I'm not your pastor. Follow your pastor, right? And we could expand this out from pastors, right? Like, when it comes to, like, imitating people, just don't imitate anyone where you could only get the Instagram version of their life, Right? The Instagram version of their life is always amazing. All you see is the highlights. I remember we just got back from a three-day trip at the beach, and somebody was like, how was it? And I was like, long, right? And, and they were like, from the pictures that we saw on Facebook, it looked like the greatest time ever. And I was like, exactly, from the pictures on Facebook, it looked that way. And it was fun. I love you guys so much. I can't wait to do it again, right? <laughs> like, right, right. It, it wasn't that far off, right? But like the Instagram version is never the real version. Actually, people who are doing a pretty good job living faithful lives in real life aren't really putting a lot of stuff up on Instagram. So, so follow people that you can actually like see the whites of their eyes. You can hug them on a Sunday morning. You can get into an argument with them over the children's ministry schedule, right? Like, like these are the people that you need to be following hard after. Older women in the church, older men in the church, deacon, deacons in the church, pastors in the church. Follow them, because they're not at a distance. God has put them right here in your life at this point, at this time, for your sanctification and for his glory. Let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we opened up your word and began to consider it together, we just knew that you were going to feed us and feed us well. And so we praise you, God, that, that our, our every expectation has been met. 
Lord, even with my weakness in preaching, your word has still done its work. You have still accomplished your purposes. Your Holy Spirit is alive and active. And we trust, God, that as we go back out into the world, that your Holy Spirit is going to take these truths and apply them to our lives so that we can glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray this with hearts full of great hope and expectation. Amen.